Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, January 27th, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we have a horrible police shooting in Memphis. Five police officers have been charged with, uh, were they actually charged with murder? I don't, um, anyway, they've been charged with, uh, with the, you know, unjustified death of, um, no, they were charged with second degree murder. I'm sorry. In the case of, uh, I don't know if it's Tyre Nichols or pronounced Tyree Nichols. Um, it's a horrible story, and uh, as a result of this story, which the uh, Memphis police got way out ahead on, you know, I mean, they really did this. This didn't become a story until they indicted the cops. Uh, this, you know, which which happened very very quickly. Um, nonetheless, they were appears, also fired first. We should note they were fired. They were from fired. The police department they were fired then, a week ago. Yes, and then they were indicted yesterday. Right for second degree um he was pulled over for reckless driving and he fled on foot and then somehow after he fled on foot and was apprehended he was then uh killed um anyway what's interesting about this is that uh something happened uh the uh the administration of justice or let's say or the administration of enforcement was uh, swift, determined, and um, quite holistic. You know, arrest on the twentieth, and in, in, indictment by the by the twenty sixth of the same month, um, and uh, yet we have police departments across the country preparing uh, for possible uh, wide scale unrest in the wake of the release of the, I guess, the body cam video uh which they are uh which uh the memphis police department is apparently going to release sometime today around 7 p.m eastern um i think we have a lot to say about this but i just want to the the details here are that something bad happened and it was immediate or appears something bad happened. It was immediately addressed. It was immediately looked at. Uh, justice was either immediately served or in a desperate effort to make it look like justice was immediately served. Um, you know, um, actions were taken across, you know, across the law enforcement system. Uh, and yet this does not provide any comfort to, police departments across the country which are now terrified that there is going to be a some kind of a post george floyd um response so christine what do you what do you make of all this well we we should wait to they are gonna they, they're saying they're gonna release the video footage today um so we should wait and see what that shows uh it, it from what we the facts that we have so far are horrible the 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 challenging thing here, of course, is that um, everyone involved in this case is African American. The five, the five police officers who were fired and are now under indictment, and the victim. 
so there's a there's a from from the perspective of the people who believe that we shouldn't have any police and that ACAB, for those of you who knows know what that acronym stands for, I refuse to say it, which is spray painted all over my city and which annoys me. Um, there's there's no problem with being consistent. They're like, look, more bad cops. See, we told you cops are terrible. We don't need cops. We should police ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. But things have changed since George Floyd. Uh, the homicide rate among African-Americans has skyrocketed um, since Black Lives Matter came on the scene more Black lives have been lost, not saved. Uh, cops have been pulling back from proactive policing as a response to everything that happened post George Floyd. For better, for worse, that has had a the, the most serious impact on neighborhoods where crime is highest. So uh, we also don't know about how these cops were trained. This sounds like, you know, he was pulled over for reckless driving. He ran. They they uh, pursued him. He was as far as the the the, the uh, call was that he, they had tasered him and also perhaps used pepper spray, but he was also, it sounds like he was physically beaten. So that is seem unless he was struggling or threatening the lives of officers or himself was armed, that seems like excessive force. So it was absolutely correct for the department to dismiss them. And it would be absolutely correct for them to be tried uh, for his death because they are responsible. And as we've said many times on this podcast, we give police greater, uh, authority to use force in the protection of society. So if they abuse that authority, they should be held accountable. As for rioting, I, I hope that doesn't happen. I think it's terribly condescending that that um, the progressive left just assumes that riots should happen every time something, something like this occurs, when in fact, most people should just be patient and, and let justice run its course. Uh, but there are a lot, there's money to be made. There are uh, political points to be scored every time something like this happens. And there are extremely well-entrenched interest groups and political groups who have an incentive to do that. Uh, I hope that doesn't happen in this case, but I think we just, we have to wait and see. Um, uh this is this case is more challenging for the Black Lives Matter narrative because uh, they're going to have to call these five black police officers somehow deluded or uh, traitorous in some regard because the white cop bad, you know, black victim, always a victim, never guilty of anything. That narrative is, no longer holds. Well, so our, our uh, you know, uh, just like um, just like a vulture circling a corpse, Al Sharpton, of course, is on the scene. Uh, and uh, emailed the Washington Post to say the fact that these officers are black makes it more egregious to those of us in the civil rights movement. These officers should not be allowed to hide their deeds behind their blackness. We are against all police brutality, not just white police brutality. And of course, who is representing the family? But Ben Crump, uh, who is, again, you know, uh, one of these um you know, I don't know, it's a different form. It's like ideological ambulance chasers. Um, Benny Crumb said the body camera footage of the arrest reminded him of the Los Angeles Police Department beating of Rodney King more than three decades ago. Really, did it? Well, you know, Rodney King lived. Rodney King, <laughs> Rodney King sort of walked away from the beating, you know, said, can't we all just get along? Uh, so it reminds you of that. We hope we would hope. It would be great if this were like the Rodney King beating in that sense, because Rodney King was beaten and perhaps beaten unjustly, but he wasn't killed. And the the issue here is that law enforcement officers deprived somebody uh, whom they stopped in what it was apparently a completely routine stop and then ended up the whole thing escalated to the point where he lost his life. 
So everything is the same as everything else. No, we're not going to. We hate all police brutality, not just white police brutality. You can't hide behind your blackness. I don't even know what that means exactly. What 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 does that mean when Al Sharpton says they're hiding behind their blackness? Does that mean like they're saying, well, since they're black, no, their cop identity, no, their cop identity is is uh, uh, rises above their black identity in this case because right. the victim was black. Now, if the victim was white, I don't know what he would have said if if everyone yeah. involved was white, we wouldn't be talking but about this story. Nobody's hiding. Nobody's invented right. this narrative for themselves. This is not a defense that they have mounted for themselves. This is just a preemptive effort to to dispel the cognitive uh, ambiguities that you encounter when you when you hear a racial narrative around an incident involving all black people. They they recognize that that doesn't make any sense to you and have to talk you out of it before it settles into something that would dispel the idea that there's a racial narrative here. Well, okay, so uh, Wesley Lowry, who won a Pulitzer Prize at the age of uh, four uh, for writing about Ferguson uh, in the Washington Post, I believe it was Ferguson. Uh, now I think it's, it's CBS News, um, and uh, uh, you know, is it a it's a relatively preposterous person, um, but I do think now that he can actually vote and drink, so at least he he has he has attained his majority. Wesley Lowry uh, says the following since this will come up a lot in media coverage of again tire nickels again as i don't know if it's tire pronounced tyree while i get it that it seems narratively significant that the officers are black statistically it is unsurprising in tracking police violence we i don't know what the royal we is we we people who don't believe in objectivity in journalism which is one of wesley lowry's causes Whatever. We never found that the race of the officer made much difference. This also applies to the narrative focus on white, quote unquote, officers in cases like Ferguson, Walter Scott, etc. What this implies being the focus on the whiteness of the officer so that it's like the officer's white, the victim is black. Therefore, it is a expression of the white officer's personal bias. Wesley Lowry says that's wrong. The issue here is not personal or personal prejudice, but systemic, something any officer could get caught up in, uh, meaning that the issue here is that the police, whether they are white, whether they are black, they are the arm of white supremacy. They are the arm of institutional systemic racism, and they are just robots fulfilling the wishes, the unspoken but nonetheless deeply directed wishes of the white majority in the United States, which apparently wants, uh, you know, every couple of months would love it if some, you know, unarmed black person was killed by the police because then, you know, everybody would get the message that, you, you know, you, you should be downtrodden and not try to overthrow the system or something This is like a, a Marxian approach to this right i mean they're well they're explain the why they're the petty bourgeoisie possessed of a false consciousness just right. because of the systems and structures in which they're surrounded they they don't understand they don't know their own uh interests right well it's or you could say it's what's the matter with kansas right why aren't you all why aren't you white working class people in kansas revolting against 
you know, the white, why aren't you voting, voting for a Kerry instead of Bush or, or Howard Dean instead of, you know, why aren't you doing that? Said, um, who wrote what's the matter with Kansas? Why Frank am I Rich. No, not Frank Rich. It oh, was, wait. uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I thought he wrote that. Guy who went to the University of Chicago, uh, whose name I can't uh, can't pull out. Of oh, the Thomas ether. Frank. Thomas Frank. There's Thank a Frank you. in so, there somewhere. Yes, exactly. Okay, so <laughs> we Thomas got the Frank, Frank. right. <laughs> no, that's again the false. It's like you don't know that what you need to do is vote for revolutionary economic change. I mean, you know, because it's, you, you've been brainwashed to think that social issues are more important. Well, and, and I've even seen- You don't seen, know if you're a cop. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. I've even seen the more extreme argument being made with regard to this case in Memphis that it's actually a, a, a shows racism because the fact that they were quickly fired and, and indicted because they were black cops. Like that wouldn't have happened to white cops. And people are gonna make that argument to have seen it kind of floating around out there on, on social media, but yeah, so. But it, um, I think Noah's right to point to the Marxian analysis here. It's like if you yeah. if you're a cop, you serve you serve a particular you know racist white capitalist system. So every you're just a cog in that, you hear, in that system. You hear that about misogyny too. That that uh, women women are the worst purveyors. You know, in of, right. of self hating. Uh, right. Yeah. But that's the utility of the Marxian narrative. anybody right. in these particular classes or groups who you think should have this. Uh, you know, a, a popular front mentality and doesn't, well, they just don't know what's best for them. They're improperly educated or brainwashed. Right. Right. But then, of course, you have this weird thing where you jumble everything together. Like I say, Ben Ben Crump saying that this is like, you know, Rodney King, um, which is when you have the when you hear people express the lit the litany of the threats and dangers to uh, you know, particularly to black men in the United States, they usually add in uh, Ahmed Aubrey's name. Whereas Ahmed Aubrey was not killed by police officers. He was killed by vigilante lunatics who decided they didn't like him driving around the neighborhood that they were in and chased him down and killed him. And they're now three of them are in jail for the rest of their lives. Well, somehow that which you could actually argue is a more it's more appropriate to look at that and say there's a problem with white supremacy or in the sense that why did these guys feel free to do this? What was it in their mentality or their makeup that said that guy shouldn't be in this neighborhood? He's wandering around where he shouldn't belong. You know, let's kill him. Uh, that could but, be viewed as some expression of a kind of unconscious belief that, you know, that it is in everybody's it's everybody's right to hunt down black people if they're in places where somebody decides they shouldn't be. But that's not police. But what's what's the utility in saying that this is um, like Rodney King? It's to say this maybe rises to the level of something that, that people should riot over. Right. It's kind of I don't have a grand theory for any of this, but it does seem to me that when there's a, a dearth of information, a lack of information, ambiguity around these situations and everybody's being tight lipped about it for whatever reason, institutional prerogatives, the conduct of justice, what have you. That's when you have the the potential for a conflagration. I'm reminded of the the Trayvon Martin trial, the, the trial of George Zimmerman, which I was 
I had to, I was at Mediate at the time. So I watched every minute of it and I had the cover of it. And it was a national thing. Everybody was watching. It was a televised trial and everybody's, the prosecutor was a household name, Angela Corey, I still remember. Um, and there was a lot of speculation that that would erupt in violence. And I never bought it because everybody was watching the conduct of justice in real time, which has the capacity to really defuse the situation get right down into the details. It's very granular. There's a, a, a procedure that is followed. It takes a long time. So passions just sort of dissipate in that process. Um, when And this police department may have acted perhaps uh, a little too aggressively and too early, but they're I, doing, they're flooding the zone with information, which well, the chief, diffuses the, chief. the tensions around it. I, the I, police Oh, go ahead. Nick. Oh, I'm sorry, Christine. Go. I'll, I'll go. After. I was just going to add that that the police chief, who's an African American woman, has also been. She has been on the news media constantly. She's she said like this is unconscionable. I this is not how you know. She's she's been a very clear and consistent messenger about this case in Memphis. I I have a different theory. Um, in the Trayvon Martin case, there was no video. Uh, and video is very potent medium for this. Um, especially the 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 George Floyd video was so gruesome for everyone to watch um it immediately just ignited um the whole country and so i think i think the potential power of the release video to to spark that kind of response is there on the other hand i i don't i i suspect we're not going to see what what people are or some people want to see and others of us are there have been so many other don't want to see of incidents but, I mean, like these. For example, the case, I mean, but Noah's right in this sense, which is that when the videos show things that contradict the Black Lives Matter ACAB narrative, they do have the effect of diffusing things. I mean, I can't remember the name of the the teenage girl who was shot by that cop in 10 seconds because she was, she was stabbing running another girl. after she was going to stab a, a you know another girl in the Swaster home with a knife. But the minute the story erupted, which was a couple, and it was in Minneapolis, so it was in the same place as as George Floyd, and I believe, am I am I right about that, or am I aligning things? Anyway, if I got it wrong, I'm sorry. But like the minute that the video is released, the story, the 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 story moved from being some terrible crime, but to this horrible, senseless, deeply upsetting tragedy where this this 16 year old girl just like her life meant that she had but, never but, had a chance but that doesn't always happen the no. jacob blake case in wisconsin where he clearly was holding a knife res totally yeah. ignoring yeah. police requests to stop and then had was stealing a car and perhaps even kidnapping children he wasn't yeah. supposed to have access to like yeah. that the people still describe him as an unarmed black man when they describe yeah. that it's particularly politicians on the on the right. left side of the aisle and but right. also in in regard to like the sort of seeing justice um the process unfold swiftly and um, even in the case of George Floyd, he was he was the the FBI got involved pretty quickly uh, to investigate, and and people yeah. and there was no sense of like, uh, oh, okay, that's good, you know. It was it was it was the outrage in spite of that anyway. Yeah, I, I just think that the circumstances that led to those, you know, twenty five million people in the streets to protest, right, uh, the George Floyd killing are not duplicable again. I, I agree. Because because as we said at the time and that we we were talking about just before, you know, 
it's just impossible to separate this from the general psychosis into which America had descended for three months because of COVID and the lockdowns. Yeah. And, and that it, the extent to which this was the first piece of permission that said, no, it's okay for you to go outside your house. And that we had basically taken all American emotion and stuffed it in a bottle and seal and put a cork in it. And then when you let it, you weren't able to like let it out slowly. It was all let out at once. And then this kind of Id, national id uh, exploded outward. Um, and that's obviously not the case now. And yeah. it wasn't all and rage. I, and, it was a party. Mostly it was a party. And, and well, that's just about every other episode of, of racial violence that gets violent at night begins as sort of a social gathering. Yeah, that that is also why um, <clears throat> the weather is a big factor here too. It's late January, not late May. Um, it's 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 the wrong month for for mass protesting, right? Anyway, I it, it's you know um, it just you know it's always nice <laughs> to know that the that the actual racial arsonists. You know what this reminds me of? I mean, you know Al Sharpton on the scene talking about, and you know Ben Crum talking about talking about. Um, uh, Rodney King. So everything old is new again. Here we are back in the late 1980s. You know, like Al Shark, you know, the, the Bono I saw is now on tour and is coming to the uh, Beacon Theater near me. I saw on a marquee this morning. Bono's on tour and so is Al Sharpton. You know, congratulations. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's the oldies, it's the oldies hits. Uh, and and here we are. So that's really a great sign of health for America that we just pull out the same old nonsense and sort of, you know, bad actors and bad behavior, you know, once again. Uh, let me take a break and talk to you about our friends at the Tikva Fund. Do you know a 10th, 11th, or 12th grader with a passion for ideas and interested in a life-changing summer of learning, conversation, fellowship, and debate? The two-week Tikva Scholars Program is for them. In 2023, students can choose from two sessions that fit with their summer plans, June 26th to July 6th, or July 31st to August 10th. Now in its 12th year, high schoolers from all over the U.S. and from as far as Brazil, Australia, France, and Israel come together to form a vibrant community of exceptional students, immersing themselves in the study and debate of Jewish thought, philosophy, politics, and the greatest texts in the Jewish and Western canon. They'll delve deeper into diverse fields such as bioethics, law, and economics, and they'll learn more about Israel as a political, moral, and military miracle, all at the highest level in small, discussion-based, college-style seminars. Your team will form lasting friendships and a close community of the next generation of Jewish leaders. They'll stay in the dorms at Mount Holyoke College in the heart of New England and get a taste of what it's like to live on a college campus. And our teachers include leading college professors, scholars, and journalists who live with the students at Mount Holyoke and develop special relationships through not only the seminars, but during meals and other fun activities outside the classroom. One such person is our own Christine Rosen. Yes, Christine, I, I, you, yes, I 
Yes, I had the great, great good fortune <laughs> actually last summer to teach one of these uh, seminars at Mount Holyoke. And I taught about technology and ethics. And uh, this is not hype for ad copy. Like it was really fun. It was the first time I'd done this. I'd spoken to groups of uh, TICFA students in the past, you know, here and there. But to have the full two weeks where you're all living on the same small, very bucolic campus, uh, you have meals together, You there are activities you can do. Um, they it was really really special time but i will say you also the peer group there is extraordinary so you have kids from all around the world and they really come committed prepared so if you're a kid who really wants to dig deeper into any of these subjects i can't recommend this program uh highly enough it's a real seminar discussion you know you're you're guided by your your instructor but my job as an instructor was to get the kids talking and thinking about these issues in a new way and debating them. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful program. Um, I highly recommend it. Okay. So to find out more, visit tikvasummer.org. That's T-I-K-V-A-H summer.org to learn more and apply today before the January 31st deadline. So that's, what is that? Tuesday of next week? Use promo code commentary to get $200 off tuition. Again, that's tikvasummer.org, T-I-K-V-A-H, summer.org. Um, Matt Continetti uh, at the Free Beacon, our Washington commentary columnist and uh, occasional podcast guest, has a, has a pretty striking piece this morning uh, about... Um, how every again how everything old is new again only in his case noah what's new again is 2016 not 1989 hmm. right so everybody should go to the free beacon and read his piece it's a fabulous piece um dovetails with a lot of the things that we've been observing and talking about with regard to the republican primary shadow primary ahead of the 2024 presidential cycle and he observes that basically we are watching the same series of overly clever uh, uh, processes by which Republicans are trying to seek this nomination and just going about ignoring Trump under the assumption he, he assumes that like 2016, these Republican candidates who have presidential ambitions think he'll fade or he'll go away or he'll be embarrassed somehow. And, and ultimately that the real problem, the real obstacle for them is Ron DeSantis. So they're probing for weaknesses around DeSantis, criticizing him on abortion, on his culture warring, his tactics, all this, all this, you know, and this is essentially uh, reminiscent of what ended up giving Donald Trump the nomination in 2016 with something like a third of the support of the of the Republican primary electorate. And it's worth watching because we've been seeing this before. And he also he prefaces this by noting that Trump's rebounding in polling among Republicans and even head to head polling against Joe Biden which is suggestive of how this uh, classified document scandal has blown up in the president's face. All true, all correct, all demonstrably, uh, you know, all the evidence suggests that this is a fine observation to make. But I wonder if we're catching Donald Trump's um, renaissance, his resurgence, right at the crest, because we also have some other information and data to suggest that while he's rebounding in polls of Republicans, he's not rebounding in polls of Republicans where he needs them. We have some polling data out of the early states, particularly New Hampshire and South Carolina, where in a, in a contest, not even a head-to-head -head contest, but just a, a slate of likely Republican candidates, 
Ron DeSantis is crushing Donald Trump in South Carolina, which is an early state. We have one South Carolina Policy Council poll conducted by Spry Strategies, which shows Ron DeSantis with a 19-point lead, 52% to 33%. Over the rest of the pack, too. I mean, this, is a, this isn't a head-to-head poll. Likewise, a Granite State poll conducted by the University of New Hampshire Survey Center, it's a good poll, found uh, DeSantis with 42% uh, to Donald Trump's 30%, 12-point margin. Um, these early states would set the tone, and I've been operating under the assumption that Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, you know, we haven't seen data out of those, and those states tend to be more friendly to insurgents. But we could get a pretty ambiguous result from the early states if this track holds, and this dovetails with some efforts by the press to interview just about anybody who ever was or will be a Republican official. Uh, Reuters surveyed Republican officials in New Hampshire, uh, 10 of them, uh, all of whom backed Trump in 2016, some of whom served on his campaign. Only three of them are willing to say that they're still on his side. Likewise, the New York Times surveyed all the RNC members, and they estimate that between 120 and 140 of them prefer somebody besides Donald Trump. Now, there are varying levels of enthusiasm around there. Some of them are just being cagey about it. Others are more vocal. But in emails and texts of all 168 of them, they could only find uh, a handful that are outright Trump supporters. So Trump fatigue is real, and it's real in the early states. And yeah, he's going to go out there. He's going to hit the trail. And he's had this resurgence by not doing anything at all. And no one can predict the future, so who knows? But, but the there... idea here that there's this uninterrupted um, Trump resurgence and it's just going to continue on the straight line trajectory towards the nomination, we have some data to contradict that narrative. There's also a sort of, um, it, it's not data driven, but there, there's definitely a feel to some of the stuff he's trying to do now. He's about to release his supposed education policy where he's not looking like a leader so much as a loser slash follower. And by that, I mean everything in his education policy proposal that he's going to uh, that he claims he's going to run on in the next election has basically just been cribbed from everything Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida. You know, he talks about, you know, he's very focused on, you know, critical race theory, gender ideology. He claims there'll be, you know, he's going to look into race based discrimination, particularly this is this is actually ironic, given what a, what the number of like egregious and awful racist statements he's made about his uh, uh, about uh McConnell's uh, wonderful wife, Elaine Chow, uh, he claims, oh, we're especially going to look at discrimination against Asian Americans. Uh, so he's he and to keep men out of women's sports. These are these are the things he's putting out there for education. But all of these are kind of culture war issues that right now, I think, on the right, DeSantis is seen as a leader in terms of combating the the, the mainstream narrative about a lot of these things. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I, I read that as like, oh, wow. So yeah, he's kind of going to do all the stuff he sees getting a lot of attention because we know he's an attention seeker. I'm not sure voters are going to buy that he's the better guy to do that, especially again, because I find it so egregious. He's been saying terribly racist things about Elaine Chao and the idea that he's going to be the, the guy you want to trust to defend Asian American students. No. Um, so Continetti, Matt's piece, I don't want to like put, put words in his mouth, but uh, this is a, a warning that uh, the political class in the United States is moving in ways that are uncomfortably similar to the way it moved in relation to Trump in 2015 and 2016. Republicans not engaging with Trump directly, Republicans having the fantasy essentially that he will just go away 
or he will fade or he won't run or he will he will make it so that they do not have to do this thing that they are uniquely uncomfortable doing, which is say he cannot be the nominee in 2024. These are the reasons that he cannot be the nominee in 2024. They don't want to do that. So they're waiting for their deliverance from it. And Matt is saying Trump is not going to do that for you. He is not going to go away for you. And he says that the Democrats sort of have the same fantasy in their heads in the sense that, um, I mean, I, I think actually that, you know, they, they do want to run against Trump. So in that, but I mean that they don't, but yeah, so they want to run against Trump. So they're also going to like stand back and let the Republicans, you know, They'll do that stuff that Jonathan Shea, you know, Trump isn't as bad as, uh, I mean, you'll get the Trump wouldn't be as bad as DeSantis because DeSantis is so uniquely effective and he's really evil or whatever. You know, Jonathan Chait's pieces about uh, about Trump in 2015 and 2016. And the point is, like, look, all things being equal, Trump is the front runner and, uh, you know, Occam's razor says the front runner ends up winning unless something happens to prevent that from happening. So while Noah, I'm as heartened as you are by the, by these specific polls, I mean, the thing is if you get this, these national polls that say that Trump is up 60, 40 over DeSantis or whatever, you know, this is the, this is the obverse or, or whatever you call it of, 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 of actual national polling relating to, Republicans, because of course those numbers are likely ballasted by states in which that Republicans have absolutely no hope ever of winning. That is, Republicans in the most populous states, who if you're if you're polling nationally, you are likely to sweep in a bunch of Republicans from California, from New York, from Illinois, uh, you know, states that the Democrats are going to win by twenty twenty five, or or you know, just primaries that in states that republicans win but don't matter like right right or mississippi yeah yeah, or a texas or just vote in the middle of march after the narrative is already established yeah so if you have these large population states you're likely to have you know the number of people who participate in the polls who live there and their votes don't count it doesn't matter in that sense if trump gets 60 percent of the republican vote in New York, because well, he's not going to win. He'll never win New York. But I, I, I don't think that Trump's resurgence is cresting. Um, I think the road is longer than that. And he's going to rise and dip. And his default claim that they're all liars and hypocrites and they're attacking me because I expose them uh, for, for what they are serves him very well and has and has served him well recently and, and and as as matt says in his column that it's it's sort of what's responsible for the start of his comeback because it it happened with the with the biden classified documents uh the the the, the when that story broke that was another you know that was a a sort of uh a verification of trump's claim and as long as he can as if if, if news cycles sort of keep churning out that allows trump to say see I, I i told you they're all they're all terrible he he will he will continue to benefit from it i i think that's 
inarguable. It's also inarguable that, you know, Trump, when he gave these two hour long rally speeches, it's not like these two were always like, and they're mean to me and they're this and they're that. There were large chunks of those speeches that were policy that had him reading off the teleprompter and saying, we did this and we've done that with inflation and this is what we're going to do in education. And this is what we're going to do on, on the environment or whatever. And he had boilerplate in those speeches. It oh, just that's wasn't. Over. That's that's long gone. No, I watched. Not at all. Oh, no, I watched. No, that, no, but they... I watched that announcement video where he yes. listlessly. Yeah, went through. Oh, it, it I, was a two and a half hour speech or something like that, and he went through the the policy accomplishments and had about as much enthusiasm as he would have right. for a colonoscopy. No, but he never did. What he gets he really had, excited yeah. about is yeah. his is his travails, and that wasn't there in 2016, but it is now. No, I, I he he never got excited about the policy stuff in any of these speeches. I'm talking about yeah, like what we're going to do. About I it. mean, the wall consists of a policy. His immigration policy no. was his policy. He doesn't have any enthusiasm for any of it anymore. Right. But I'm just saying he's he he always had these two faces. It's just that no one ever paid attention to the policy face because it wasn't interesting. And like you say, he wasn't that interested. In it. You're saying he was interested in it in 2016, but he was only interested in it because it because it 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 uh, it was an accelerant for the crowds. Guy doesn't care about the wall. Anybody who thinks that Trump cares about the wall, he would have built more of the wall if he had really cared about the wall. I'm sorry. That's just the way things are. It's ridiculous. He, the wall was an afterthought. You know, it was like a one-liner he threw in that got an enormous amount of laughter and applause, and then he just started playing into it. It doesn't matter, though. You're right that what matters, his 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 um victimization narrative is what he cares about but we are keep getting as christine noted with this education stuff we keep getting word from inside trump's camp that he's going to spend the first six months of 2023 going around talking about policy listening to experts yeah blah 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 blah. and he may i don't think it makes the slightest difference because nobody who likes trump likes him for that it's, maybe that's not fair. Weak Trump supporters or people who might, would vote for him, they'd vote for a Republican over anybody. There are weak Trump supporters who are like, you know, America was better off when he was president. You know, we were growing, uh, but- we had tax and this and that, whatever. And then they're like, and, you know, and he didn't he didn't hold with this, you know, liberal nonsense about wokeness. And I like that about him. And maybe if he plays those chords, you know, they'll hear them enough to say, yeah, I'm I'm reminded of what it was that made me think he was pretty good in 2019. But see, I, that's where I think that those are the voters actually I have hope for because and we and we talked about this a little earlier in the week on the podcast. He really isn't how to put this up. About uh, six months ago, very few prominent Republicans, when asked by mainstream media if they were interested in running, were going to talk about challenging Trump, right? We've now moved pretty quickly into a into a phase where plenty of Republicans are openly discussing, both on and off the record, their, their intentions to throw their hats in the ring. So that shows weakness for him. And I, I just think that, again, Ron DeSantis trying, I assume, playing a long game here, hasn't announced anything, has been focused on Florida, had his big, you know, inaugural you know, celebration after winning re-election, but all of his 
actions as governor will will be a good contrast to the words of Trump, even setting aside, as I completely agree with Noah, that he that he only comes to life anymore when he's talking about being aggrieved and a victim. Even if he wants to talk about accomplishments, a lot of his accomplishments are talk, as you say, not just the wall, but a lot of his COVID handling, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that voters who are looking back on those years might say, yeah, it was better than Biden, but he wasn't that great either. And here's a guy who's right. actually in his state got evidence that he could do it better. So that that tension, I think, is going to continue to grow, um, as well as more and more Republicans openly saying, yeah, Trump's not our guy. We're going to we're going to put our hats in the ring or this person needs to run, et cetera, et cetera. Let me just throw one other one other thing in the in the ring here. <clears throat> Amy Walter uh, of the Cook Political Report has a piece in which she says conventional wisdom says that either Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump will be the GOP nominee in 2024. It's easy to see why, <clears throat> but this also seems too easy. If nothing else, conventional wisdom has been turned inside out and upside down these past few years. remember when Scott Walker was the 2016 front runner or Jeb, although I don't think either of them really was, but okay. Um, The path to GP nomination wasn't always this uncertain. The phrase Republicans fall in line, Democrats fall in love was a pretty accurate description of the nomination process for much of the 20th and early 21st centuries. She is saying, I'm watching governor Brian Kemp very closely these days. In a recent column by Kemp's wooing of the electric car battery manufacturing to the state, Politico's Alex Burns writes that while national Republicans are bereft of a positive vision, Kemp is a rare actor in his party trying something shrewd and new. He argues, and I agree, says Amy Walter, that Kemp is, quote, the most resilient conservative politician of the Trump era with a gift for finding a solid spot and shifting ground and fixing him there. And, of course, Kemp went right at Trump and and beat him in the sense that Kemp was said, no, you lost here in Georgia and I'm not playing your game and I'm not going to suck up to you and say preposterous psychotic things to make you feel better. And then he won reelection by nine points or something like that. So Kemp is the most is the politician in the Republican party over the last seven years who has actually survived a conflagration with trump and in fact seems to have benefited from it and we're not talking about camp and maybe we should any thoughts i just i I haven't read amy's pieces it came across my transom but i didn't read it yet but does she see indications that he's prepared to run uh I've seen yeah, that. I mean, I mean, again, it's like everyone's kicking the tires, so you're kicking the tires. That's all I can say. I mean, uh, beyond beyond doing interviews, has he done any of the structural stuff? To no, but I, has anybody campaign? Yeah, has anybody done yes. it? Yeah, who? Yeah. Nikki Haley, uh, Mike Pompeo. Right. Uh, we right. have all the evidence that they're they're building. Okay, so staff, when you're at one percent, when you're at one percent in the polls, yeah, when you're at one percent in the polls, <laughs> right? You're. I mean, but you got to. Uh, I mean, if you're going to do it, you got to do it now. No, you don't. I don't agree. I absolutely. Don't if you agree. haven't got your donors lined up, first of all, now, yeah, you you're behind the ball. It's two years, and if you have a successful, it's not two in years. the current, in the current, it's thirteen months. Right in the current, what's not even thirteen months? It's now twelve months. But in the current political environment. If you catch fire, you can raise $100 billion in a weekend. That's what the internet has done. So I don't I don't think that's true about money. 
and event owners, my conversations with the people I know who are significant Republican donors would suggest that though they are completely mostly focused on DeSantis, if you said Kemp to them, they would be like, he's he's impressive. And he just handled the protests in Atlanta very well, too. I should add, he activated the National Guard. He, you know, he he was very his communication strategy throughout was, I think, very effective. Um, yeah. There is also the simple case that, um, you know, uh, Democrats kind of need to win Georgia in 22. I, I know this is voters don't really particularly primary voters don't really go for this kind of argument. But um, uh, if you deny the Democrats Georgia in 2024, uh, you are well on the way to winning the presidency for the Republican Party in the Electoral College. Um, because, uh, you know, that was one of the that was one of the three states that Biden flipped the other way. And so, uh, you know, this is this is and and Georgia is kind of a purple state now because Obama they went for Obama once and they went for Biden once. So and they went for uh, so th- this is a serious business. What you're you're Noah's squinting George, at me. Obama didn't win Georgia. Yes, he did. He won he did? Georgia in oh, 2008. Yes, yeah, Absolutely, he yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but he didn't win in 12. And then and then Trump won in 2016 and Biden won in 2020. So Georgia arguably was the state that uh, proved that you could take the presidency away from Republicans if they had a uniquely a candidate that people uniquely didn't want to run, didn't like. Um, and Kemp being somebody from uh, a swing state at the presidential level is a is an attractive candidate. The weirdest polling in this all this the, these polls that we mentioned is that uh, uh, Sununu Chris Sununu. I'm sorry, I uh, just introduced it. This is okay. Yeah, what Obama did not win Georgia in 2008. He did well, not Virginia win Georgia and North Carolina. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I just I'm Am thought I, I was crazy? Going crazy there. What? What? I no I. Okay, I, I apologize, but Biden won it. Okay, so it's so it's recently, and of course there, and of course in twenty twenty two, Democrat Raphael Warnock wins the state, wins the Democratic, wins the senatorial race, while Kemp wins the um, wins the gubernatorial race. So Georgia's up for grabs in twenty twenty four. You could see it go either way. It's one of the few states in the country you can really see go either way. In Arizona. Um, in Arizona. And this uh, uh, Santa yeah. Gallego primary could actually be a pretty definitive um, race for... It's not even a primary. It won't be a primary. She's not running as a Democrat. I mean, if she runs as an independent, she she's in trouble. But she's, she's declared no that she's an independent. Yeah, all right. She's well. left the she's left the Democratic Party. True enough. That's why this is that so mean hard. You can't for... run for it for its nomination, by the way, as Bernie Sanders attests. Um, but yeah, she doesn't okay. she doesn't seem to have the kind of infrastructure right. or just a, just you know basic you know support among average Arizonans like like a Lieberman, like a Murkowski, where you could could really trade on your name. Yeah. Anyway, I, I do think that it's a very one very interesting aspect of this is you, when you say Brian Kemp doesn't have the infrastructure, he does because governors have their own political infrastructures because they are executives and because they have po- they have what presidents have. They have a policy shop and they have a communication shop and they have this and they have that. Yes. And you're not supposed to, you know, you 
your political campaign has to be separate from your gubernatorial office. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be really, we really have to silo those separately, but, um, but he's already built a political operation in Georgia that you could, that's one of the reasons governors are attractive presidential candidates because they, they already have machinery at least in one place that they can kind of grow outward nationally. That's what Bush did. That's what Reagan did. That's what Clinton did. That's what everybody who is, who runs, you know, from a, from a governor's mansion does. And it's worth remembering that, you know, Obama was what? He was like the first Senator president to get to the, to the presidency from the Senate in, since Kennedy, since Kennedy, and then Kennedy was the first one for ever, <laughs> you know. After that, like senators have actually not been good, you know, candidates. Um, I mean, but I think the challenge for a Kemp or any non-Trump Republican is they have to show why they're better than DeSantis, right? Well, they have to show, so they have right, so they have the challenge. DeSantis only has to show that he's better than Trump. Right. And they have to show that they're better than Trump and DeSantis, assuming DeSantis runs. Yes. Show your work. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, DeSantis has has liabilities. You know, he's not that charming. He's a little robot. He's shy. Uh, there are plenty of people, by the might way, might be an asset are, for a Trump, formerly Trump controlled yeah. GOP, I got to say. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, there are there are people who like overcome that and do really well. You know, Nixon overcame that as a matter of his how his personality worked and did win the you know largest landslide in 1972 that we've ever seen in any, you know, ever. Um, so it, it's not like you can't get there from here. Um, and God knows whether Kemp is, you know, can stir crowds and stuff like that. Obviously, a lot of gubernatorial candidacies fizzle because people hit their own state, the ears of their own state well, like Scott Walker, and have absolutely no ability to project that out from there. Scott Walker was very much, Wisconsin was very much a DeSantis type as a candidate for president, right? He was, he took on his own state's establishment. He was, you know, he was attacked viciously for what he did on schools. There was a recall effort against him to and to oust him from office that he survived uh, by this, you know, very heated, uh, you know, he transformed the judiciary. He did a lot of stuff that we would recognize today as like the DeSantis playbook. But, you know, if you were in a room with him in 2015 when he was running, you sat there with him and you were there for about six minutes and you were like, nah, this isn't going to happen. You know, because he had this very low pulse and that's one of the reasons that he could survive the onslaught against him. But having a slow pulse is not the sort of thing that really, you know, like captures the febrile imagination of the electorate. So I don't know. Uh, okay, well, it, uh, oh, everybody, listen, we are trying to clear out our commentary merch. Uh, we have shirts, we have bags, we have fun stuff you can see at commentary.org slash merch. We want to get rid of it and start anew and produce some new stuff that you can get. So if you will follow, if you will go to commentary.org slash merch, you will see sales of up to 50% on the goods that we sell go there 
enjoy, buy yourself a crushing morosity shirt, buy yourself a keep the candle burning shirt, buy yourself a mug. We got them. If you like it, enjoy. Uh, and uh, commentary.org slash merch. We'll be back on Monday for uh, Noah, Abe, and Christine. I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.